Today's scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 13, and then verses 21, or 20 to 21. And you can follow along with me as I read aloud. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And then verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's uh, pray briefly uh, before we start. God, we pray that during this time it would be a time of great um, blessing, but also a time of great challenge. Uh, We know uh, that this story that we read uh, is an origin story of sorts to explain why uh, things are so wrong with us and things are so wrong in this world. And God, as we reflect upon this story, help us to also look into our own hearts and reflect upon not only what's wrong with us, but uh, perhaps more importantly, uh, what you have done about it in your son, in whose name we pray. Amen. So we are spending a season and we are looking at the topic of fear. And we're reflecting on fear and some of the fear and some of what fears reveal about our faith and where we put our trust in and things like that. And the premise is basically this, that fear is something that probably holds most of us back from living faithfully to God, from doing what God is calling us to do. Fear, uh, the picture I want to give you is fear is like this constant companion, and sometimes it's a companion that feels like this big giant that kind of is like over us all the time. But I also think fear can be like this invisible friend, and we're not even aware that it's there and it's operating. And the last two weeks, what we've tried to do is we've tried to see how fear connects to things like faith and how fear connects to things like our pride. And today, what I want to do is I want to look at fear and see how fear connects to this topic of shame. Now, if you're someone who has some kind of familiarity with the Bible, then I am going to guess that this passage that we just read in Genesis 3 is somewhat familiar to you. Uh, because it's a famous passage. It gives an account of what's called the fall, how sin entered into the world, how through this one act of disobedience, uh, death entered into the world and the world became broken. 
And God essentially told the man and the woman that you can eat from any tree in the garden, but you can't eat from this one tree. And what the serpent says is, you know, if you eat from this one tree that God told you not to eat from, you will not die, but rather you're going to be like God and you're going to know good and evil. So there's a temptation there. And what ends up happening as we read the story, they disobey God by eating this forbidden fruit and God's good creation ultimately becomes broken by sin. That's a story in Genesis 3. But not only does this passage tell us the origin of how sin entered into the world, but it's also a story that shows us the consequences of what happens after sin enters into the world. And we see, uh, according to verse 7, the very first thing that they notice is that they were naked. And as a response to their nakedness, they sew up these fig leaves together to try to cover their nakedness from one another. So shame first reveals itself, actually pretty quickly after disobedience, but first reveals itself in the horizontal relationship. They realize that they were naked before one another. After that, they hear the sound of the Lord of God, Lord God walking through the garden, and for the first time in the garden, they run away from God. They hide, and that shows the vertical dimension of sin and shame. And you ask, why would they try to hide? And the man gives his answer in verse 10. He says this, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. Why was he afraid? Because I was naked, and I hid myself. And this is the first time, at least in the Bible, that we see fear recorded in the garden. He's afraid because he was naked, and therefore his response was to hide from God. That sense of nakedness is what we are going to call shame today. And today what I want to do is spend our time unpacking basically that one verse and thinking about how shame and fear intertwine in our lives. Now, first, let's just ask a very basic question. What exactly is shame? And I think most of us know what shame is through the experience of it, but we might not know how to define it. Uh, sometimes we use guilt and shame uh, interchangeably, and although they are very related, there is a subtle difference between how shame works and how guilt works. When the Bible talks about shame, it's usually paired with three kinds of people, three categories of people. The outcast, the unclean, and the naked. And those three categories of people are usually associated with this idea of shame. Now, if you think about these categories, shame doesn't necessarily come from something that you did, although it could, it doesn't necessarily come from something that you did. Uh, it could be based on uh, something that was maybe done to you. It could just be based on someone you're associated with. It could be based on some kind of physical ailment or condition like a leper that you have, that you had no control over, and shame comes associated with those things. Although shame could also be a, a product of what you did. For example, you might be an outcast because you violated God's law and the Torah, but you see, guilt, I think, is primarily about what you did wrong. And so what guilt is looking for is punishment or guilt is looking for forgiveness. And therefore, we can say guilt lives within a courtroom, but shame is a little bit different. Shame lives in the context of a community. Shame says you don't belong. You are not acceptable. You are unworthy. Shame expects and lives in rejection. Whereas guilt, again, requires forgiveness or punishment to make things right, what shame requires is cleansing, fellowship, love, and acceptance. 
And I think that's what makes shame so powerful in terms of living life in community. Think about this. A community can either reinforce your shame and thereby destroy you, or a community can help you be restored from your shame through love and welcome and fellowship. And so what does shame look like? Uh, let me just give you a couple examples and stories just so you get the sense of how shame works. You are a student in middle school and you come home and you bring a test and that test, it doesn't say A on it, uh, it says C. And you give it to your parents and <laughs> your parents says, C? How could you get a C on this test? Is that really who you are? I raised you to be an A student, not a C student. What do you feel? You feel shame, right? During recess, you're playing kickball, and you're waiting to be picked on a team. And this guy gets picked, and this girl gets picked, and this girl gets picked, and this guy gets picked. And after everybody's picked, you're by yourself, and finally, you get picked. And you're the last person picked. And it's humiliating. What is that feeling? That's shame. After graduation, all your friends find a job. All your friends start to make some money and move out of their parents' house, get their own place. But you can't find a job. And you still live at home with your parents. And you have no money to spend. What is that? Shame. You're not married yet. And it seems like all your friends are starting to get married. And you're still single and you don't want to be. And therefore, you don't like hanging out with married folks anymore. You don't like going to weddings anymore. Why? Because deep down, there's this feeling of shame. Your parent, your child, pulls a fire alarm in the building. And they look at the security cameras. They know it's your child. And they know the building had to be evacuated because of your child. As you walk through the hallways and you, as you look at neighbors, or probably don't look at neighbors, what do you feel? Shame. You know, shame operates very everywhere and is different for everybody. But if you identify with any of those examples, you probably feel it deep down in your heart, like that bad feeling of like unworthiness. That is shame. And it lives within us. But you know, shame can also come about by something that happens to us when even we didn't do anything wrong. If you're lonely or sad or depressed, uh, maybe you keep it to yourself because you feel ashamed about it. If you've been laid off because there's a financial crisis, and it wasn't because you didn't do your job well, but you just got laid off, you feel shame. Did you know <coughs> in most cases of sexual abuse, it actually goes unreported? Why? Because if you report it, it becomes public. If you take it to trial, the sexual abuse becomes public. And oftentimes, victims don't want to go through that and experience that. Why? Because it, with that comes a sense of shame. They didn't do anything wrong. In fact, something wrong was done to them. And yet, in that violation, you can feel unworthy. That's shame. I think it's pretty safe to say that we all experience shame to varying degrees and for various reasons. Just ask yourself, have you ever felt noticeably different from everybody else? Maybe you looked physically different. Maybe you were culturally or racially different. Maybe you were intellectually different. Maybe you were different in terms of 
how much money you make or your socioeconomic status. Maybe you're the only one who didn't go to college. Maybe you're the only one whose parents were divorced. That experience of feeling shame or embarrassed, of feeling like you're the only one, and because of that you feel like you're more unworthy than everybody else, that feeling that you don't measure up, that, friends, is shame. And what is that feeling? You feel exposed because everybody can see how you're different. And because everybody can see how you're different, you start to feel insecure. That's another difference between guilt and shame. Guilt, uh, it can actually be hidden and it can be private. You can keep it to yourself and not reveal it to anybody. But because shame lives in the context of community, shame is usually going to be public. And that's why shame isolates us and cuts us off from deep, meaningful, and healthy relationships. Now, shame is also intimately tied to fear, as we saw in our passage, because probably our, one of our deepest fears is the fear of being exposed. That's why our responses to shame are oftentimes also tied to fear. Why does a man say he hid from God? Because he was afraid. And fear drives us to respond to shame in a variety of ways. And what we see in our passage is there are basically three ways, at least here, that they respond to shame. The first way they respond to shame, and again, driven by fear, the fear of being exposed, they try to cover their shame. They try to cover their nakedness by sewing these fig leaves together. And I think we have that kind of response all the time. Think about it. If you're insecure about something, what do you try to do? Maybe you try to cover it up with your achievements in life. Maybe you try to cover it up with your career or success, finances, relationship, popularity. Uh, this is the equivalent of what Adam and Eve did in the beginning in the garden in terms of sewing fig leaves. Uh, there's this old movie that uh, I used to think was like so funny. Um, it starred Ryan Reynolds. It was called Just Friends. Anybody watch that movie? Uh, <coughs> you know, in that movie, it's, uh, it's interesting. So he... He's a character, and, uh, you know, it's Ryan Reynolds, so he's super good-looking, right? So he plays this, like, really good-looking and successful music executive, and he has, like, this fancy car. He has a lot of money. Uh, a lot of women are attracted to him. But the problem is, in that movie, at least, he, uh, he can't be in a meaningful, intimate human relationship. And then you see the backstory of why that was and who he used to be, at least when he was in high school, and you kind of understand why he became the way he became. You see, the backstory is when he was in high school, he was like this overweight kid. He had braces, he had this strong lisp, and he had a secret crush on his best friend played by Amy Smart. And what he decides to do uh, before they graduate, you know, you have these yearbook signings, and he's like, I'm going to confess my love to my best friend. He writes it in his yearbook and write, confesses how his true feelings for her. And, you know, Yearbooks get passed around, so it's getting passed around, <laughs> and someone reads the message, and it's like, what? And they're at a party, and he's like, everybody listen to this, and he reads this humiliating <laughs> confession of love to everybody at the party, and he gets completely exposed and humiliated. And what does he do? He leaves town, and he creates this brand new life, a life that is based on money and success, and for him, it's kind of like these fig leaves that he's sewing together to cover up his nakedness. And I wonder if maybe that's why some of us are so driven uh, for success, whether in academics, whether in career, whether finances, even family success or relational success. Maybe it's a way to cover up our insecurities. By the way, I think it's also a big problem for people in ministry and for pastors. Uh, serving churches, and sometimes how your church does is a way to cover up 
your insecurities. Now, the second response to shame in this passage is something that I've already mentioned, but it is to hide. You know, a teenager with a pimple on their nose doesn't want to go to school. Uh, the person um, who trips and falls on stage has the urge to just, boom, run off the stage. The person who just got fired doesn't want to go home and face their family. I think we all understand how this works because we've all been there, and we've all responded in the same way. And, of course, I think you see it in kids, too. Uh, when a kid gets in trouble and maybe you reprimand them, a lot of times, what do they do? They don't look at you. They, they look down. And I think part of that looking down is they're, they're trying to hide. <laughs> they don't want to face what they have done wrong. There's something within us that wants to run and hide. Third response is something I think we see in verses 12 to 13. When God asks the man, have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat, what does the man say? The woman gave it to me. The woman God that you gave to me gave this to me. What was he doing? He's shifting blame, right? People do this all the time in order to avoid getting exposed. You know, when a friend says to you, you know what, you've been acting like a jerk lately, you might say, what? Ah, uh, yeah, I'm acting like a jerk, but you know, it's because work is so stressful. Uh, I'm acting like a jerk because uh, my parents are on my back. When a manager says, you know, why are the results of this project so bad, you might say, well, this person on the team and this person on the team didn't do their job and they're not very talented or uh, whatever it is. Uh, you know what ruins genuine apologies? Two words. But you, right? Yeah, I know I, know I acted like a child and I threw a little bit of a tantrum. But you were a poor communicator. But you said this to me. Yeah, I, I know I shouldn't have yelled at you. But you made a mess. You know what that is? That's a subtle way of shifting blame. And why do we do that? Because we don't want our own junk to be exposed. We don't want to be exposed. We want to hide, cover, and shift blame away from our nakedness. And I think that's why fear plays such a big role in terms of hurting our relationships. We are so afraid of being exposed and rejected that we create these dishonest and destructive responses to dealing with our shame. The fear of shame will leave us isolated and alone. The fear of shame is going to lead to these superficial, inauthentic relationships. The fear of shame will conceal the truth rather than reveal it. And guess what? A church community that allows fear and shame to dominate in the community suppresses the true power of the gospel. Why? Well, what's the alternative? We respond to our real shame with counterfeit solutions. We cover ourselves. We put our Sunday faces on and say, everything is great. We hide ourselves. We don't show up to things. We shift blame away from ourselves. And you don't need the gospel for any of those kinds of solution, and therefore there is no power of the gospel in those solutions. You know, up until now, I've mostly talked about this horizontal dimension of shame, but uh, we have to also consider the vertical dimension because that's really the one that the man in the garden is concerned about in our passage. And uh, let me also say this. Uh, shame is not actually necessarily a bad thing to experience. Uh, some people maybe don't feel shame at all, and uh, that's not great either because uh, it usually means that maybe there's no sense of moral compass or morality outside of the individual. So it's kind of like, well, I feel like this is the right thing, and so uh, I'm going to just do it. And maybe there's no shame in, in that if there's something wrong that comes out of that. 
But where does our sense of shame, where should it ultimately come from? It comes from this vertical dimension in our relationship with God. Shame comes from the fact that we have failed him and we have broken his laws. It comes when we haven't lived according to the set of standards that he has set for us. That's where shame ultimately comes from. And if we don't care about the vertical dimension, then we won't experience shame as we ought to experience it. Why did the man hide? He was afraid. What was he afraid of? He's afraid of God's judgment. Why did he shift blame to the woman? He was afraid of God's judgment. He knew he had disobeyed God, and that disobedience is ultimately what led to his shame. You see, when, fe- when sin is like a, is, it's a reality to us, I think we are supposed to experience a sense of shame. We should feel naked, and we should feel exposed. We should feel somewhat unworthy and rejected. We should expect God's judgment. But we shouldn't stay there because that's not where God leaves us. What does he do? God covers our nakedness. God covers our shame. Look at verse 21 with me. God does something really merciful and gracious to Adam and Eve here. Uh, And it says this, And the Lord, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin, and he clothed them. He clothed them. Even as early as Genesis 3, God is the one who covers their nakedness. God is the one who provides and gives them the garments of skins in order to clothe them. And, of course, these garments are not enough to cover their shame forever, but all throughout the Bible, do you know clothes are a major theme in the Bible? Uh, And you get hints of it, of what God is ultimately going to do through this metaphor of clothing and garments. Let me give you an example. In Isaiah 61, verse 10, it says this, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Just picture that imagery for a moment. And what is it saying? It is saying that God covers us, not just covers our shame, but covers us with beauty, with glory, with honor. Just like an elaborate priestly garment for a bridegroom, just like beautiful jewels for a bride, this is what is ultimately promised in Christ. We go to the New Testament. It's replete with language of clothing. In Romans 15, 13, Paul says to put on Christ, and literally in the Greek, what it says is clothe yourselves, right? Clothe yourselves with Christ. In the letter to Laodicea in Revelation 3, Jesus says to the church that they are naked. And what do they need? They need white garments in order to clothe themselves, meaning they need a righteousness that is not of their own, but a righteousness that comes from Christ. And lastly and finally in Revelation 19, at the marriage supper of the Lamb, the bride metaphor for the church. The bride is clothed in fine linen, bright and pure. And you see, this is meant to be a picture showing us that God is going to be the one that clothed us, just like he clothed Adam and Eve all the way back in Genesis 3. God is our tailor. He is our spiritual tailor, but the cost of his materials are extremely high because it comes at the cost of the death of Jesus on a cross. And on the cross, Jesus, he Ironically, he becomes the one who is shamed. He becomes the one who is exposed. He becomes the one who is naked. 
before all of man and before God. And on that cross, Jesus, he is stripped of all dignity and of all worth as he becomes sin on our behalf. On the cross, Jesus becomes the outcast, the unclean, the naked, so that we might be accepted, so that we might be made clean, and so that we might be covered by his blood, by his righteousness. You see, in our fear of shame, that is the only place where you will find refuge, genuine refuge and freedom from the fear of being exposed. That is the only way that it is possible for us to confess our sin to one another without feeling exposed. That is the only way that we can face rejection without feeling like we are outcasts. That is the only way that we can truly be our true selves, even in our weakness, even in our struggle, even in our sin before one another, because Jesus has covered us, and there's shame no more. There are probably some of us who struggle with some things, right? We struggle with personal sin. We struggle with maybe a life situation. And my guess is many of us probably struggle to, or probably prefer to struggle with these kinds of things alone and in isolation. Why? Uh, Because we're afraid. Shame is probably hindering us from genuine and real accountability and real prayer needs and real support. Shame is probably holding us back from really experiencing the kind of grace that is powerful enough to floor us to bring us to our knees, to make us weep with joy. If you've embraced the gospel, then you live in shame no more. No longer are you naked. No longer are you exposed. No longer are you the outcast. No longer are you unworthy, but you have been covered by the blood of the Lamb. And there's a great freedom in that, that we have to embrace you know maybe it is appropriate for community groups because we're starting community groups today and uh you know one of the one of the biggest complaints usually about these kinds of things is you know these are superficial communities right nobody really makes themselves vulnerable so you don't really reach a level of depth of relationship uh people don't share about um you know their deep marriage problems their deep uh, insecurities about where they are in life uh, people don't share. Uh, we're, we're always hiding and sharing. Uh, I think one of the ways that you could practically apply uh, this series on fear and overcome fear is to take a step and maybe for the first time in a while, try to s- take a step <laughs> of vulnerability and see what happens. Maybe it doesn't work out well, but maybe you find yourself experiencing a kind of love and grace that you could not imagine is possible and realistic who knows but i think if we still live according to that fear of shame in our hearts uh, we're always going to have a wall around us and we're always going to keep people at an arm's length away but let me let me also take it a step further than that you know if you are clothed in christ then there is also a positive effect Uh, it's not only that you are no longer naked but if you are clothed in christ you are actually clothed and covered with glory and honor. With glory and honor. Some people, uh, some of you maybe are into clothes. Uh, 
I dress well on Sundays, or maybe, do I dress well on Sundays? Kinda, right? But Monday through Saturday, I I could care less what I wear. (laughs) I I buy all my stuff from Uniqlo, and it's like solid colors because it's easy to pair and easy to match. But I do know the feeling of like, you know, when you get this like nice custom-made suit and you wear it, and you know, you go to like a fancy event, it does, it does make me feel better, right? It makes me feel a little bit more confident. It's like, yeah, I'm, I'm dressed in this like, nice suit. Uh, do you know that feeling, right? You, you kind of feel like a million bucks. That's why I think one of the reasons why people enjoy clothing. Uh, if you are uh, a woman and you wear this really fancy, beautiful dress and it really brings out your best features, there's, I think, a confidence that you draw from it, right? It makes you feel good. Well, that's just clothing, right? That's just material stuff. But you think about it this way. If God, if the gospel says that God is your tailor and he has clothed you with something far more beautiful and far more valuable, where he has clothed you with the very glory of Jesus Christ, what does that do to us? What does it do to our fear? It takes it away, right? It takes it away. <laughs> we no longer feel unworthy, although we should in and who, uh, because of who we are in our sin, but we no longer feel unworthy because we know that in Christ, God has covered us and covered our shame. And I tell you, friends, the more this becomes a reality and the more we can embrace it, and I know that's a challenge, which is why we have to pray, but the more that becomes a reality in our lives, I think we will feel much more freedom and I think it'll make our relationships so much more fruitful and meaningful. And if we feel isolated, And if we feel like we're alone, it will make you feel much more connected to one another. God has covered us, covered our shame, and he's given us honor that comes in Christ. Let's pray together.